don't touch that dial. You are tuned into the right station. It is the Forum at 8 this morning, and we are in conversation with one of my heroes, legendary jazz musician, composer, arranger, trombonist Ntate Jonas Gwangwa. And, you know, I want him to back announce that song that we've just listened to that's just got everybody up and dancing in the studio. Uh, the song, the name of the song is Murwa, which is a southerner, actually talking about South African, South Africans. Yeah, that's what it is. And <laughs> thank you so much for coming in uh, this morning, um, uh, Mr. Jonas Gwangwa, and just watching people deriving so much joy from your music. What does <laughs> that do to you? Uh, it elates my spirit, of course. Uh, uh, I, I'm very happy that people at least know that, you know, they know that song, you know, and that it makes them happy. You don't dance when you're not happy. <laughs> Absolutely. They don't just know it, they love it. Yeah. But, you know, what we do is we try to get into the heart and the soul of the person. We try to get to know who our guests are when we do these Friday interviews on the Forum at 8. Mm. And... One looks at it and um, it tells us you were born in Orlando East in 1937. But what were those early years like and who were you born to? Who were your parents? My father was a, 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 a was the first carpentry teacher, actually, instructor in what you call Soweto today, but it was Orlando East at the time. And uh, he was teaching about five schools. My mother was uh, just my mother when she was a housewife, you know, raised us. And uh, my sister, my sister, my eldest sister started playing the piano at about 12 years, you know, so she was quite a singer. You know, she was doing all the light classics on the SABC on Saturdays. Yeah, we'd run, we didn't have a radio then, so we'd run to the neighbors to go and listen to her sister singing, you know. She played the piano very, very well, you know, and when she practices, we'd go and listen to her, and then she'd do our favorites first before practicing, me and my uh, other sister. So I grew up in this family where we would uh, pick up a hymn book, you know, and sing the notes, you know, as a family, you know. So there was always music in the house. And uh, that's it. I think that's where I picked it up. Now, very interesting that of all the instruments that were available, you picked up the trombone. Yeah, I actually like the clarinet. I, I, I think I just like the name clarinet, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, the time I asked for the instrument, because I got this instrument from Father Huddleston when I was in high school in St. Peter's Secondary School in Rosettenville, uh, at that time, Glenn Miller was, was the artist then that was being played and everything, you know, and there were movies about him, you know orchestra wives and all that, you know. So the trombone was the instrument, you know, the popular instrument. So I went to him and said, I'd like to play the trombone, you know. And uh, he got me one, you know. And uh, the school 
uh, continue to have uh, what you call other students asking for instruments too until we ended up with a big 12-piece band. And, and, and I'm told that that was the first and the only African high school band in all of South Africa at yeah, the time. That was the one. That was the only one. It's true. So uh, we had that high school band and practiced and, and, and till we got good enough to even perform in all uh, the, the school functions and visiting schools wanted to get to St. Peter's and, you know, and of course the food in St. Peter's was good. <laughs> <laughs> we had meat with our stamp every day and on Fridays we had a nice big piece of fish and uh, yeah and uh, it was a top school in any case you know it was uh, known as the Eton of South Africa mm-hmm. and of course uh, that encounter with um, Father Trevor Huddleston mm-hmm. um, it led to other very interesting encounters with people who also became household names in uh, the South African music scene yeah well Father Huddleston was uh, a political he was a political activist, you know. He was actually very involved with the removal of Safar Town because his his church was as uh, Christ the King, you know, in Safar Town before he came to St. Peter's. So when the removals came in, he was very active, you know, against against that. So he was a popular man, you know and uh, was working hand-in-hand with the ANC at the time because that was the only uh, uh, movement that was fighting against apartheid at the time before PAC was born. So he was an ANC man. Actually, that's why he got that Twalandwe, you know, award. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And then, and, uh, of course, brings to uh, brings us to those very interesting times of the 1950s. Um, you had Sophia Town and all the excitement, the buzz, the vibe that was around that particular place. I, I want you to talk us through perhaps one or two memories from that sort of time. Uh, but also, as you say, uh, uh, Father Huddleston and his involvement with the African uh, National Congress, your political a politicization around that sort of time. Yeah, it started then because he was actually instrumental in getting us to play at the uh, the adopting of the Freedom Charter in 1955. We were in Clip Town as the Hudson Jazz Band, you know, to entertain the people in between uh, the speeches and everything, you know. So. Uh, our politics, I must say for me, that was the launching of my career in politics, you know. And after that, we played a whole lot of uh, fundraising uh, shows for the ANC, you know. And uh, I did more of that when I got to play with the older musicians, uh, the Jazz Dazzlers, where I was playing with the Giants, you know, all the big uh, musicians at the time. Because I was like the only 
trombone player who was playing bebop, let me mm. say. Yeah, I went into the whole bebop thing. That's interesting. You talk about bebop because we hear bebop today and we think it's a new thing. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We played bebop then, you know, because we were listening to the Charlie Parkers, the Jesus Gillespie's at the time, you know, and we tried to uh, emulate that, you know. So, bebop it was, you know. But we didn't just played bebop. We also played South African backgrounders, you know, our South African indigenous music at the time. Because the shows we did were, at the time, was concert and dance. Mm. You get into the hall and start doing a concert part with uh, the singers and everything that, uh, 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 from 8 until 12. And then the people, the audience moves because we were playing in the in these uh, halls, you know. <laughs> uh, they would move the benches to the side. Then we come in and do uh, the dance part, you know, with the band. And it was big band time at the time, you know. But we in the Harrison Band had a, a few of the guys like a trumpet, trombone, saxophone, and rhythm section to do the combo. You know, that's where we did more of the bebop. You see, with the big band, we're doing all the mm. swing numbers and the maklangas and things. And, uh, you know, um, you mentioned uh, Kipi Moeketsi, and today we look around, we see places named after him you know you go to the cape town jazz festival and mm. you know there's a session in a certain a space dedicated to him but it's very sad when one learns that he died a penniless man you know yeah. and, and and how does that happen such a great musician well <laughs> apartheid did not just affect uh, certain people or just the working class people only. You know, musicians, in the first place, the government did not regard musicians as as, as people who were working. They, they just thought that musicians, African musicians, were just people who were work shy. You know, vagrants, that they called us, you know. So to to be able to go around with your past, you know, without being accosted by policemen, you know, each time and taken in, you had to be signed maybe to a sh an ongoing show like uh, African Jazz and Variety or King Kong, you know, the musical, you know, something like that. In between, you, we really had problems. I had some white lady who was working at Dokey House because that's where we operated from uh, just to sign my pass you know every every month because you had to have your, your pass signed to say you are employed and you had to pay the poll tax and all of that was in the same book and uh, the policemen always asked for it in the streets you know, they would even go into the houses, you know, 
And I remember when I was doing King Kong, because we'd hang out after the show, you know, we said we'd gone prowling, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you look like someone who could go prowling. <laughs> yeah. We'd be prowling. And uh, then, then you sleep until late, you know. Yeah, they found me in bed, you know, in my blankets. And then, boy, they were so furious and said, pass, you know. I should go for my pants there and get get given the pass. You know that even infuriated them even worse because, <laughs> you know, they couldn't get me. You know, it was that bad. You know, mm. yeah. And, and and it's absolutely remarkable that in spite of all of those challenges, that people still were able uh, to form these companies and make that great music. But like so many others, you also eventually left the country. Yeah, fortunately, I left the country with the musical King Kong, you know, and uh, Kipi was also... In, in in the show, uh, we went to London, you know, the West End of London, a Princess Theatre, and we were there for some time. Although I was there for six months, and I went to school in the U.S. But you see, the thing about South Africa at the time, it was not just the venues, which we still don't have, you know, in this whole country. We don't have a concert hall. I'm sure you're not aware of that. Yeah, we have theaters, you know, for drama and everything, but a concert hall, we don't have. We don't have venues. We're playing in soccer fields, you know, and uh, I, I I can't take you or take my wife and say, we're going for an outing and then I take you to a soccer field, man. You know, with all the kids making noise and all that, you know. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't have that respect, you know, still for musicians. You know, they can talk about everything else, about sports and all that, but not about music. I'm sure you haven't heard any politician standing. I'm taking it from right upstairs and talking about culture. I don't know why the department exists because it really doesn't take care of us, you know. In conversation with the one and only Ntate Jonas Gwangwa. And of course, you can join in the conversation 0891 You can SMS us on 34701, tweet or Facebook AM Live on SAFM or at Sakina Kamwendo. And just looking at some of the tweets coming through, uh, Kulu SD says, uh, Bra Jonas's and Bra Hughes' music sustained us in exile, and to date it brings me joy. It will forever stay green and relevant. Uh, Jimmy Mpengwa II says, what was it like for Ntate Gwangwa knowing that his music has been so powerful and influential to so many people the world over? And Tebza Mashiko says, ooh, what a legend you have there. Ntate Gwangwa, it's a pity he's not celebrated enough in our country. So we are happy that we can at least add to that in terms of, you know, celebrating the great legend that he is. Flowers of the Nation and what an absolutely stunning, stunning piece of music. And I think that many South Africans recognize, but why Flowers of the Nation? I took Flowers of the Nation from the ANC. They used to refer to all 
the ladies in the movement as the flowers of the nation, the African National you know, Congress. So the women, the women's section is the nation's. It refers to all the women in South oh, Africa. Feeling so special right now. We <laughs> <laughs> ded- dedicated that also to the children, you know, the budding flowers of the nation. And you, you were actually quite intimately involved with the African National Congress in exile. And there's a particular moment that I want to take you to uh, before we even talk about uh, the other things that were happening. The raid in Botswana. Mm, mm, mm. Do you care to tell us a little bit about what happened there? When the raid in Botswana occurred, I was in Angola uh, and uh, I also wanted to speak to uh, President of the ANC, Oliver Tambo, at the time, because I had just uh, been asked by uh, the Botswana government to do performances and take care of all the big holidays, you know. So I had to ask for permission because I was at the time directing the Amanda Cultural Ensemble of the ANC. So I must ask for permission to do that, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I did speak to Mr. Tambo and the permission was granted. But at the same time, that was there was this attack in Botswana. I was uh, actually I had just flown in to Lusaka at the time and uh, instead of passing through one of the old friends uh, Langa, hey, he said hey man we haven't seen you in a long time why don't you just stay for a day or so so we can chat and I said okay so I left the plane that was on Monday and then I even left the one that was on Wednesday to take the one that was going to Botswana on Saturday because that's where my family was. So uh, I, I took this, that, uh, that plane and of course the, 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 the attack was on was on what was on Friday, yeah, Thursday or Friday, in Botswana. So I arrived on that, and I had to participate. Then you know, uh, arrange the musicians, and because some of my friends had been killed, you see. But that caused the commandos, the South African commandos, who were actually still in Botswana, because they had established points, you know, like businesses, you know, fake businesses inside Botswana, you know, and they were still there. And uh, it, it was just like uh, a, a Germany and France, you know, during the World War II, where people met in the daytime, you know, with those agents. And in the nighttime, the operation started, you know. Uh, we would see each other, you know, and then identify the guys, you know. But in the evening, 
we're scattered like roaches, you know. So I I had been helping out with my wife at the funerals and took some dishes to to some you know, like my friend's place, George Parser, for instance. And she came and coming from work said, Hey, we must go and get our dishes and that was around five or so. And then she was delaying. I said, hey, the sun is setting. We've got to do this very quickly. And she said, I have a headache. So I drove alone, you know. And something told me that I was being followed. You know, this car following me, following me. I said, hmm, there is a circle up ahead. I'm going to find out if he's really following me. So I took the circle and he was following and then I passed the entrance that I had taken in, which meant that I was doing the circle a second time. That's when he realized, I think, that I had noticed him, you know. And then he branched off. But I just said, mm, there must be another point where they are waiting for me because I'm sure he's relayed me, mm. you know, and sure enough he did. By the time I got close to uh, George's place, there was a T-junction and there was a van, you know, with police, uh, a soldier sails on the side. I said, I'm not going to go past that van. I turned <clears throat> to go around to uh, George's place. And whilst it was still there, because there was just the old ladies, uh, the lights went out. There was a blackout in the region. I didn't say bye or what. I ran to my car, took the same route that I had taken. That van was driving back, and the guy made a mistake by saying, Darcy, you know. And uh, I drove back the way they came, you know, to the next mm. street, got out of the car, took the key, jumped fences, and that was the chase. But it was a triple chase because that first car and this second car, and the, the house I jumped into had two guys in it who had lights on. The, the rest of the place was dark there. They had their light. I don't know what it was, you know, some lantern or something. But I ran there and said, this is Jonas. Uh, I'm being chased and everything because there were two guys talking in there. And uh, they stopped. And I said, this is Jonas. Open the door. And the guy says, just get into the car. Get into the car. I'm coming. Now, whilst I was at the house at George's home with the old ladies, the kid brother came to me and said, I've been watching a, a blue van going up and down here very suspiciously. And uh, when I looked, I saw this is a blue van. I hadn't seen it before. I said, wow, I'm in a trap again. You know, I had to run again, run again, you know. But that chase was just like the likes you've only seen in the movies, 
you know, because I was driving like hell. And <clears throat> thankfully, here you are today. And, uh, and, and, and it raises a very important question about the fact that your music, you know, even though uh, Jonas Gwangwa, we listen, devoid of any lyrics, essentially, but still able to, you know, rouse up such passion in people. And, and, and I've always wondered why that is. Where does that come from? Uh, I, I think I grew up with music and everything all around me, yes. But uh, the, the times that I spent in Angola whilst forming that show, that show Amanda Cultural Ensemble, yeah, that's where we, we, we discussed a whole lot of politics and you saw, you really saw the suffering and understood what was really going on. You know, because as soldiers, soldiers are, are not just uh, weapons. You know, they are trained, and they were trained in South African politics, the history and everything, you know. Uh, 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 some of the children that were there, you know, they got there as very young children who left South Africa uh, running away from child employment and things like that. But... You know, it, 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 they hadn't gone to school. They're only going to school out there, you know, being, whilst being trained. They're quite, quite, quite averse uh, 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 about what was going on in South Africa. They really knew the history and the politics of South Africa. And they, they taught me quite a lot. Maybe we should talk about um, what some of the callers have raised with regard to the current state of the arts, um, music. You know, we crossed to Rowena. She's at the National Arts Festival. But those seem to be, you know, little dots somewhere on the spectrum. What is your view on that? And as uh, Chester was asking today's artists, what do you make of them? It's just a whole lot of questions. How much time have you? <laughs> we have don't you have got? much. <laughs> you know, I still have to speak about that saddening thing I, I asked you for. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's quite a lot. <laughs> mm, it is a lot. Yeah. But uh, give it your best shot. But uh, I would say uh, there are schools, you know, that are, t are teaching jazz, you know, here at home. But I still go back to the fact that we don't have venues where we can perform all this music, you know, because we have to teach the young folk, but, but they have to learn from the older folk, you know, because I'm not against quiet, or I know children have to have their music, you know, but grow up to something, you know. We have lost the indigenous music, the dances and everything is going out because we are so bombarded with American music, you know, we don't know who we are any any longer. We're losing that part of it. And if we don't get the places and get the respect, especially from the department, you know, the respect for music, you know, it's funny because they play so much of American music you know, here at home and on TV and everything, you know, they don't realize what America is doing, the importance of music. You know, we should be able to brand South Africa, you know, in other countries, you know, influence those people 
to play our music. You know, that's 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 where the importance of music comes in. The soul of the people, you know, and the country. You saw in soccer how the Brazilian people, even children, were crying when Brazil was losing. It's because of the way they feel about their country. That's what's important. We are losing the indigenous music of South Africa. We haven't got places where we can just teach people our music. That's the important thing, you know, how our people react to their own artists. Yeah. Even our soaps are turning, uh, you know, they are becoming very the bold and beautiful kind, you know, we have stories to tell. And I think we should get more of those to the children. And I think that there's a conversation to be had around those particular issues. But just very quickly, before we need to close it off, Batsumi, what's that about? Batsumi is the very people who, are, I'm saying, do not shoot the people... Don't shoot the children, don't shoot. The very people who are shooting at us, you know, that's an address to them. I'm speaking about the same apartheid people, you know. I was a victim of those, and I've seen very many of my friends die being shot. That's the message. I'm addressing the apartheid people, who, the bure who were, teaching, who were shooting us. And that, unfortunately, is all we have time for, even though we could go on and on and on.